This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie. Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad you're here. Now today, we have eight questions. And I also want to draw your attention to the fact that I forgot when I was on vacation to turn off the automatic, I don't know, post, I guess you'd call it, where it posts asking you for your questions. So next week, or I guess, yeah, it'll be, I, I shut it down for one week so that we can get caught up because I want to respect the fact that all of you took the time to put your questions in and I forgot to turn it off and I didn't do a podcast last week. So thank you so much for understanding and for letting Sean and I take that break. And I know this is like two weeks later because we're always ahead of schedule, but I at least wanted to acknowledge the fact that we took a break. It was good feeling re-energized and sorry about that automatic post going up. Just too many things to remember, right? But without further ado, let's get into your questions. Question number one says, hey, Katie, I hear a lot about how people are not responsible for the feelings of others or that you can't make someone feel a certain way. As someone who has grown up in a home with domestic violence and has been emotionally abused and neglected my whole life, these statements really bother me. I, of course, understand that we are responsible for how we handle our emotions and how we react, behave and cope with them. But is it really true that we can't hold people accountable or responsible for how their words and actions affect other people? It just doesn't make sense to me how we can say that emotional abuse is bad, but at the same time, tell people that they aren't responsible for other people's feelings. Does this statement just make it easier for people to get away with being abusive and gaslight other people who are suffering from abuse by telling them that it's their fault or their choice to feel that way? I would love to understand this better as I'm finally beginning to realize in therapy just how bad my situation has been. These statements have been one of the barriers that, that keep coming up for me because they confirm my belief that the abuse is my fault and I'm just being dramatic and choosing to feel hurt and traumatized. Thank you. And there's an add-on um, that I'll get to in a minute. But I love this question and I think it's important that we clarify, okay? Now, when I say that we can't make someone feel a certain way, what I mean is we can't control other people. Unfortunately, we can't make people apologize to us. We can't make people feel sorry for what they did. We can't make people, I don't know, stop abusing us or um, miss us, right? If a relationship ends and we wished it didn't, we can't do anything to make that person come back. They come back if they want to, right? Everybody has free will. And that's really it. I want to end that like period. That's it. We can't make people feel another way. We just can't. 
However, we are all still responsible, each of us individually. We're responsible for our actions and behaviors and what effect that might have on other people. That means that each and every one of us, if we have been a total dickwad to someone, it's our responsibility to own up to it and to apologize. Now, the person that I harmed can't make me do that, but they can. And here's where the power comes back is someone, and I encourage all of you to do this. We can communicate with those who have harmed us and give them an opportunity to apologize. We can even ask for an apology. They still have the choice of whether or not they're going to offer it. And that's really what this means. I feel like the the thought or the belief that we can't hold people accountable isn't really correct. You can hold people accountable, but holding them accountable might mean that we communicate the upset, they continue to be an abusive piece of garbage, and we, because we can't control them, decide that we don't want to be around them anymore. And we don't want to have that relationship. And we've said our piece and we told them how much how hurtful that was and how you know, how much pain they caused us, they can or cannot decide to apologize or to, to change, right? We can't make other people change. And I know we spend a shitload of our time and energy thinking, you know, I could just move on if that person would say sorry, or I could just live my life happily if they would just do what I want them to do, right? We're going to, that takes away our power. That means that we're giving them our power by saying that I'm held frozen until you do something. What if instead we say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you an opportunity to rise to the occasion and be better, treat me better, treat people better. And if you can't, then you don't get to be a part of my life. That's us being empowered. Now I know for some people they're like, that feels aggressive. That's because we've probably been told our whole lives that it's not okay to speak up or assert ourselves because then we'd get abused, right? That's kind of part of that the trauma response, the shame, guilt, and embarrassment that kind of holds us down and and holds us back from expressing ourselves and then holding a healthy boundary, right? I'd love, I'd love for you to be in my life, but I can't if you talk to me that way. That's a healthy boundary. Are, is everybody going to like it? No, not our past abusers or narcissistic people. They can get very offended by boundaries. What do you mean you're not accessible to me 24-7 or when I want to talk to you, you can't talk to me? They don't like that. They are responsible for themselves and we can hold them accountable, but the holding accountable just means making them aware of how hurtful it was for you. And if there's something that we we're wanting from them, like I would want an apology or I would prefer for you not to talk to me that way, we can say that and then they get to choose whether they do it or not. And then we get to choose whether or not we continue that relationship. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I feel like it's really important that we tease this out because holding people accountable doesn't mean they're going to change. It doesn't mean they're going to say sorry. It doesn't mean that they can take back the pain they already caused us. But it does mean that we can choose to not have them in our lives anymore and work in our own way to process through that pain. And that would be through, you know, therapy and social support, uh, therapeutic groups, things like that. So people, I hope that that teases out anyway. I don't want to keep belaboring it. Let's move into the comment. It says, adding on, as an autistic person, I really struggle with understanding what it means that someone is not responsible for other people's emotions, but are responsible for their actions and how to navigate this space. For example, I might have a meltdown and genuinely hurt a person with that. Now I am told that I hurt the person with my actions while I feel like it was done to me too. 
Like I didn't have full control over it. And the things that I can do is to, oh, and the things I can do um, is to, oh, to try to prevent a meltdown or try to prevent being next to people when I'm having a meltdown. But I have very limited options on what I can still do when approaching a meltdown and taking it out calmly is not one of them. Or say person A is drawing away from person B and person B feels neglected and alone. But person A is overwhelmed by their emotions and needs time alone. Now, person A knows that they're hurting person B. So you could say that they're choosing to hurt them, but also being there for person B would be hurting person A. Okay. Love this comment. Now, the difference, I guess, is the fact that I think we have a lot of, we have a tough time as as humans being able to hold two things separately, knowing that in many ways they can become connected. Now, hang with me, okay? Meaning that if someone is not responsible for other people's emotions, like I can't make you feel any kind of way, I can also hold at the same time. So person not responsible, can't make people feel a certain way, can also cause hurt and pain. I know those feel like opposites, but the reason that they can both happen is because of the like the motive behind, like I might not even know that I'm hurting you. I might not even understand what I'm causing you, but that doesn't mean that I didn't do it. But your reaction is still your own responsibility. Does this make sense? I know this is very nuanced. It's essentially the fact that I, as a person, don't have the power to create an emotion in anyone else. However, I'm still responsible for the actions that I take and the hurt and pain that they might cause. And it's up to me as a responsible and loving individual to acknowledge, if it's within my knowledge, right, that I harm someone to acknowledge that and apologize for it and do better, try to be better, right? We're all works in progress. No one's perfect. We're all going to hurt people's feelings, say things someone doesn't agree with, do things that someone else thinks isn't right. And we have it within our power to decide whether or not we think that was wrong and apologize for it. And I know that it seems difficult to hold these two things. I can, number one, not be responsible um, for someone else's emotions, but then I'm responsible for my own actions. I think the the confusion here in this part of the question, and I'm sorry if this is getting confusing for anybody, I'm trying to keep it as clean as possible, is they're saying that as a pers- as an autistic person, I struggle with understanding what it means that someone is not responsible for other people's emotions, correct, but are responsible for their actions and how to navigate this space. Now, we are not responsible for other people's emotions, but we are responsible for how we interact with the world. And that's just it. We can't change how people feel. We can't make people feel worse or better, but we can control our own actions, our own behaviors, and where we see fit, or maybe we're someone makes us aware of something we did that was hurtful, then we change our behavior and apologize. I hope that makes sense. Now, when it comes to this example, when they said having a meltdown that genuinely hurts a person, we can, like, for instance, I'll give another example that that maybe is a little clearer for some people. Let's say I'm having the worst day of my life. I'm, I just got into a fight with Sean. I'm PMSing hardcore. I'm running late. And then I get to see one of my girlfriends like on the way and she wants to talk and I like brush her off and I'm extremely rude. Okay. Now I can be having a shit day 
And that I can hold that here. I can say like, hey, like this person having a meltdown. I'm having a hard time. I don't have a lot of act, like options right now. My resilience is low. My day is a total piece of garbage and I feel terrible. So I can hold that and validate that. Be like, yeah, Katie, you're having a bad day. I'm so sorry. That sucks. And also validate the fact that just because I'm having this shit day or I'm having a meltdown, I don't really have a lot of options. That doesn't mean that I'm not still responsible for the way that I interact with my friend. And I can't also say, I'm so sorry. I should not have been that short with you. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And if I did, I apologize. If you want some context, we're not trying to make light of what happened. If you want some context, I was having a really bad day and I didn't mean to take it out on you. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's how we have both. I know it feels like they're exclusive, but I promise you they're not. Life is filled with these kinds of things. And it's like almost that old adage where they're like, um, you know, uh, not like walk a mile in someone's shoes, but they're like, you never know what someone else is going through. Always be kind, right? You don't know someone else's journey, what they're fighting, right? We all have invisible battles we fight every day and we don't know, but that still means that we're responsible for how we interact and we can still feel really shitty. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So those who abused us are still responsible and they're pieces of garbage. Anyone who abuses someone else, I honestly think deserves just a punch in the throat and spit in the face. Bad people but they might've been abused themselves and we can still understand. I've talked about this with parents a lot where I say like, you can be like, I really love my mom and dad and and they're really important in my life. Also, I really don't like the way that they raised me and they really did a lot of harm because of the abuse that I know they sustained, right? We can be, it, it sounds difficult and it is can be hard to hold both of those things, but we can. And it just takes practice and it takes a little understanding. I think a lot of us can benefit from, you know, acknowledging our own pain and validating it and then also seeing the other person's side that could maybe build a lot of bridges where we feel like one couldn't maybe normally be built but anyways i hope that makes sense if you have any follow-ups you let me know but yes people are still responsible for their actions but we also cannot make someone feel some kind of way okay let's move on to question number two this question says hey katie i hope you're well as someone with bpd Could you give us advice on how to find balance in opening up to a therapist or a psychiatrist without becoming too attached? Also, is there such a thing as becoming too attached that it will delay our process of healing? Sending my love. This is a great question. Now, when someone has BPD, for those of you who don't know, that stands for borderline personality disorder. And one of the key components or like the main pillar of BPD is an intense and essentially irrational fear of abandonment. Now, irrational doesn't mean that it's not valid and they don't feel it. It just means that it is usually like 
over reaction to what's happening, or they don't actually have any facts to support it, but that fear is just always right there. So the smallest slight triggers it. Okay. Now we especially see this come up when it comes to mental health professionals, right? Because they show up for us, they're consistent, they listen, they give us support. They give us the things that maybe we were really needing. And when we have BPD, we can feel this urge to take them take that relationship and be like, oh, you'll finally fill that void that my mom, my dad, my grandma, my aunt, whoever left in my body, in my emotional state, I'm going to put you in that hole. It's going to feel so good. It'll finally be fulfilled. And we become overly attached. And so when that relationship ends, because as we all know, like a therapist, psychiatrist, those relationships don't last forever. They can last for many years, but the goal is honestly for us not to need therapy, right? And just to pop in and out as we need checkups, just like we do for our physical health. So how do we find that balance? Now, your therapist should assist you with this. And I would honestly encourage anyone with BPD or any attachment issues at all to bring this up with their therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, whomever you see, bring it up with them. Because it's going to be a 50-50 split, like all relationships, on holding this balance. And from the therapeut- like from the therapist standpoint, I always have these like ground rules with my patients. You cannot get in contact with me in between sessions unless it's an emergency or you need to reschedule. Now, if I have a borderline uh, patient who really struggles with reactivity and feels like they're always in crisis, then I say to them, an emergency means that you've done X, Y, or Z. And we put together a safety plan. So there are certain things that my patients have to do before they reach out to me. Those things include a lot of dialectical behavior therapy tools, um, like impulse logs, backburnering things, using other resources and supports to help guide us through, um, doing some somatic things and like tapping, just uh, maybe doing a full body shake, things that we can do to kind of soothe our system, calm us down so we're not quite as reactive. Then they wait 30 minutes and then they can give me a call or text me. Now, the thing about it is if we are in an emergency, we have to call 911 or take ourselves to the emergency room. We can call our therapist or text and leave a message or whatever. And we have, I believe, and I don't know if every state or country is different, but in California, I think it's like a reasonable amount of time. So it's usually like within 24 hours, I'll get back to my patients. And that's usually the reasonable amount, unless I'm out of town, in which case then they have to call whoever's, uh, you know, taking care of my patients for me. So this balance is like, you know, no calls or texts in between unless that. And then talking about the transference or this attachment that's coming up in session and helping you find ways through a lot of inner child work, how to soothe yourself. Meaning, I know that's a lot of therapeutic mumbo jumbo. What I really mean is we need to be offered by our therapist or whoever we're seeing some ways to offer to ourselves that love and support that we did not get from our parent or the maybe the attachment urge that we have. We have to find other ways to soothe that. Now that can come, like I said, in like inner child work where we uh, write letters to and from our inner child. It can be very beneficial to write from adult you with your dominant hand. For me, that's my left hand. And from child me, I write back in my right hand. We can have conversations about times we maybe felt scared or overwhelmed. If we have trauma in our past, this can be incredibly beneficial, although it's best to be done with a therapist because it can be really triggering. We write these letters back and forth to kind of get to know them and to offer them that love that we didn't get. That's actually how we kind of heal that wound. Now, if we don't find it's that that works for us, 
There are other attachment things that we can do. There's a lot of therapists who do like attachment-based therapy, and that can have a lot to do with certain relationships in the relationship with ourselves. I still think it should involve some inner child work because I really feel like that soothes that um, impulsivity, that child like us, like raging for support. But either way, that's what's going to help. Now, the what that looks like for a patient, because maybe I'm getting off topic, I feel like when we don't want to become too attached, how do we as a patient balance that? It's just respecting the boundaries that you've talked about with your therapist. That's really your role. And then show up in session and do the hard work. I know it feels impossible and you're like, but I really want to be attached to them or we feel that urge. It's okay to have that urge. It's a different thing to act on it. When we have that urge, like I've had tons of patients over the years where they will say, I really wish you were my best friend. Or, you know, I started feeling like you were my mom. That's helpful in the therapeutic setting. Because then I can say, I'm curious what about, you know, what about our relationship feels like that? Are there things that we could get you to offer yourself? And I'll give them some homework of things that they can do, again, to do that inner child work, to offer what they think I have to younger them. A lot of times it's just consistency. So we'll talk about self-care and showing up for yourself every day to make sure you're feeding yourself, drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, things like that, taking your prescribed medication as prescribed. There's these things that we can do as kind of a self-care Maybe it's like tending to our illness, going to the doctor, putting a, you know, cleaning up and bandaging a wound, things like that can be very parent-like and we can offer that to ourselves. And so it's just bringing those things up in therapy and allowing that work to happen. But other than that, the balance is really just you speaking up when those things come to mind, those urges to attach and respecting your therapist's boundaries and talking with them about it, telling them, hey, you know, as you know, I have BPD. I really need to know what the boundaries are of therapy. And if they say I can get a hold of you, like if they say, oh, you can text me or call me anytime and I'll, I'll get back to you, find another therapist because that's not healthy. We should not, that's going to trigger this attachment and it essentially is going to make it harder for you. Okay, cool. Now, someone says as an add-on, can you also talk about the balance between asking for and accepting your therapist's support when struggling and not becoming too dependent on outside support? I think there's a time and a place for dependence upon outside support. Like just comparing it to physical health. No one would be mad at you for saying like, oh, I need to see my doctor to get treatment for my cancer, right? I have to go every week or every so many days. I have to go get my infusions. No one would say shit about it, right? It's no different for our, our mental health. Again, boundaries are important and healthy and we should talk to our therapist about it. However, accepting support when we need it is just part of the process. And sometimes that's gonna mean that we need to go twice a week or maybe we need to go inpatient and stay at a place all day or live there and stay the night. Depending on our level of need at the time, just like we might have to stay in the hospital if we're really, really sick or we might just need to go see our doctor every week for our infusions or whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with needing outside support for a while and like looking forward to it. Now, over like every six months or or so, we should talk with our therapist about the progress or if we're making any moves toward our goals because we don't want to be dependent on it forever. Like I said earlier, the goal of therapy is to like not need it anymore. And so just like we don't want to have to go to the hospital all the time, right? The goal is to get better. Obviously, some of us are going to need it more long-term than others. We have different levels of mental illness, just like physical illness. 
but um, it's okay to need that support. And I encourage all of you to lean into it a little bit again with healthy boundaries and understanding of, you know, when our therapist is available and not, and having someone who actually respects boundaries and is, doesn't allow us to access them all the time. I have an older video you can look up on YouTube, just like put in signs of a good therapist, Katie Morton, or signs of a bad therapist, Katie Morton, and those videos will pop up and you can watch those. Um, but that's really the balance is allowing yourself to get that support until you don't need it anymore. And you can even ask your therapist, you know, how will I know I don't need this support anymore? I feel really dependent on it right now. And then those will be meeting your goals, but sometimes it helps to talk it out. Okay. I hope that helps and makes sense. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, Hey Katie, I have an oddly specific question. A week or so ago, I experienced suicidal ideation, no plan or intent, but it just scared the shit out of me. Now I can't stop thinking about it. And I spend most days constantly thinking, what if it happens again? What if next time it's so bad that I actually make an attempt? I truly don't think that that will happen, but the anxiety about it in and of itself is making me depressed. I'm not experiencing suicidal ideation, but rather crippling anxiety about experiencing it again. What is this all about? And do you have any suggestions on how to cope with it? Thank you. I'm so grateful for your podcast and this community. Of course, I'm glad that you're a part of it. I'm grateful for you. So great question. You're going to, ha- we're going to have to figure out where this came from because suicidal ideations are interesting. They can happen for a lot of reasons. We can have them. Uh, it sounds like yours might have been uh, stress or anxiety related. I don't know for sure, but the fact that you're having anxiety about it coming up again, it makes me suspicious. When it comes to any suicidal thoughts, I think a common misconception is that it's always linked to depression. And that's not always true. In this case, it sounds like it might be. They said it's making them depressed. So it could be. But sometimes we can have suicidal thoughts for all sorts of different reasons. Suicidality can exist on its own. And I'm just curious what led up to this. Because the more we understand, instead of what our brain wants to do, what this knee-jerk reaction of your brain wants to do is it wants to be like, la, 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 this never happened. I don't want it to happen again. I don't want to have suicidal ideation again. I'm so afraid it's going to happen again. La, 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 right? Instead of doing that, we actually need to be more curious about it. I want you to consider where it came from, what the trigger was, what led up to it. Can we think back like a week or two in the past? What was happening? What was our stress or anxiety level? And then once we know more about it, then we can work to better manage it. Meaning, okay, this is these are the things that I was experiencing and things I went through that triggered it. So let's say it's anxiety-based. Okay, then I need to tell my therapist I need to work on my anxiety. And I actually have an anxiety workbook available on my website too. If you're not in, currently in therapy, it can be a nice assistant to get you going. Um, Maybe I can start recognizing my anxious thoughts. Maybe I can start doing full body shakes when I feel it build up. Maybe I can lower my caffeine intake or, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that we can do to help ourselves feel better. And I really just want to encourage you to be curious. Don't try to stuff it down or pretend it doesn't exist. Be curious about this and why it popped up so that we can do something to better manage it. Okay. And you're not alone. A lot of people have this happen. And the worry and the stress that it will happen again, it honestly isn't very helpful. Like we all know the worrying about it can make it worse and it can actually make it happen again. And so we want to be curious and then learn to manage whatever the cause is. So just be curious, not judgmental about it. 
And that will give you more information on what your next steps are. And once you figure out if it's attached to your depression, your anxiety, your stress level, maybe burnout, maybe, you know, whatever it could be. I have videos about all of those topics. You can check that out for specifics for the issue that you find affecting you most. Now, there was a comment on this as, as an add-on. How do, how are, can you be there for someone like a friend or a family member who expresses these ideations? How do you support them with an appropriate response without making them shut down and maintain the trust in a relationship? If a family member had an evaluation by a professional who deemed them safe to go home and stated that they don't feel the person will act out, how do you handle that after? When you're back home in the days and weeks after, I appreciate when a friend or family member trusts me enough to confide in me during that time, but I just don't want to make things worse. I think I speak for everyone when I say the best thing we can do is check in and just be there. I honestly do not expect, nor do I think it's the best thing. I don't really recommend that we try to help or fix it. We're not the professionals, right? If it's our friend or family member and they're just saying, well, we know that they had suicidal thoughts or maybe there was an attempt, we're not the ones to make it better. We don't have to have answers. We're not supposed to fix it. That's what mental health professionals working with clients, that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's what we do. Leave that to the professionals. Your role as a friend or family member is to truly check in on them in loving ways. This doesn't mean, hey, how are your suicidal thoughts doing? Depends on your relationship. But for some people, that might be a little too much, too fast. So instead, we can just say, hey, how are you doing today? I was thinking of picking up, you know, food or a coffee or something. I was going to come over. Can I come over? And just being there. Want to watch a movie? Want to play a video game? Something very, want to go for a walk? You don't have to have these deep, intensive conversations about what they're going through or offer to fix it. We just need to be there. And that consistent checking up and checking in is going to be really important. And then on the flip side, if this is affecting you, you need to get your own help. You need to see your own therapist. This can be very stressful to have someone that we love, you know, in such a dark place. And so it's important that we get support too. Okay, there was another thing. It says, and adding on to this, what should I do if this only happens in specific circumstances? I have no thoughts of suicide normally, but the minute my parents leave for a trip, I feel overwhelmed with the fear that I might experience them um, with the fear, oh, that I might experience them, the suicidal thoughts when they're gone. And it sends me spiraling so much that then I do experience these thoughts. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't want to tell my parents I feel this way because I don't want to ruin their holiday or make them feel like they can't ever leave me alone. And it's also a bit silly needing them so much when I'm 22. I feel like I should be able to cope without them. We need you to get your own therapist. What sounds like it's happening here is some attachment stuff. I mean, if you were younger, and I don't know if there's an age limit, I haven't dealt, I haven't had a patient in a while with reactive attachment disorder. This sounds a little bit like reactive attachment disorder to me. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and so that's what I, you know, we would need to see somebody so we can work on it. Um, and if, oh yeah, it's a condition where a child, I had a feeling, um, reactive attachment happens a lot of times with children. I didn't, I don't know if it can be diagnosed in adults. It doesn't look like it can, but, but I think that we're having some attachment response and that can be, that can happen for a lot of reasons. Number one, abuse in our past. Now I'm not assuming that with you. I'm just giving people kind of a rundown. A lot of times when we experience childhood abuse, neglect, sexual, physical abuse, any of those things, we can struggle with reactive attachment. We can also, um, you know, if we had like bullying, had a trauma that way, if our parents have been, if we have no boundaries, if our parents are very enmeshed, or maybe we have addiction in our family. So we're kind of codependent where their emotions are our emotions. Um, and we kind of like work together. Their addiction is the addiction. Our addiction is making sure they can live their life. Does that make sense? And enmeshment means like, I don't have any boundaries. Their emotions are my emotions. If we have any of those kinds of things going on in our family of origin, it can be difficult to have healthy boundaries. And then wanting to go on a trip can be very triggering and overwhelming. This can come up for a lot of reasons, but I would get into therapy and figure out what is happening for you. It sounds a little anxiety based for me, hence why I was like kind of reactive attachment, but I don't know why. And I, it could, it could be, you know, based out of generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder. We can have suicidal thoughts due to panic attacks. I don't think enough people talk about that, but it can be, they're very closely, closely related. Wow. I really stumbled over that one. And I think it's because our nervous system gets overwhelmed and we go into kind of like a, you know, our, our stress response, our fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And that can cause a lot of things to happen because it pulls our prefrontal cortex offline, which is like the part of our brain that is involved in organized thought, planning, um, kind of the adult, right? It helps with our impulsivity. When that's offline and our limbic system, which houses our amygdala, runs the show. It's super impulsive, reactive, and it's it's there to keep us safe, right? To get us out of harm's way. But then it can also be like overwhelming and put us in harm's way. And so it can be really tricky. So we're gonna have to find some ways to probably calm your system down. That could be through, you know, doing some grounding techniques like cold water on your face. You could do a full body shake to kind of reset your nervous system. We can do some vagus nerve stimulation. Um, I had a video come out about that recently. We can do all sorts of different things. I even have videos about like, you know, managing stress, burnout, anxiety. I have my anxiety workbook. That could all be really helpful for you too. And then obviously creating a, a safety plan and putting some of those things in it. But it should be, I mean, see a therapist, be curious, not judgmental about why this is coming up for you. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question is, hi, Katie, can sensitivity to stress in adulthood be affected by childhood or repeated childhood trauma? In complex PTSD, hypervigilance is part of the diagnosis, correct? But can sensitivity to stress count as part of it? Yes, I'll explain this. My brain reacts strongly to the slightest stress. I get dizzy quickly, find it difficult to concentrate, numbness in my arms and legs. I become sensitive to loud noises or lights. 
and I get several other symptoms of severe stress. I also have been sensitive to stress and and too much stim, too many stimuli. I had thought that maybe it was ADHD or just me being oversensitive. But after starting therapy and realizing that my upbringing was a more than less ongoing trauma of small T's, I've started to wonder if my sensitivity to stress has anything to do with it. I also wonder if there are ways to train up and increase one's stress tolerance. Now, someone left a comment. And again, it was like, you guys read my mind. It was like, could this be part of autism spectrum disorder or ASD? And I'm curious about that. The person who asked this question, I don't know if you've ever been assessed for it or have any other symptoms of it or things that have, your life's been affected by it. But the the difficulty with too much stimulus, I think everybody out there in the ASD community is like, yes, it, it everything seems like too much. Like the lights are, can be too bright, too much noise. Like I know for um, many of the autistic people in our community, they've told me like restaurants are super overwhelming because it's like, there's music, there's people talking, there's food and like the textures of food can be really difficult. So it's just a lot. And we can like have a meltdown or get overwhelmed and feel like completely dysregulated. So I wonder if that's your experience, just throwing that out there, but I don't know. Also people with ADHD can have that. Like you said, you thought it might be part of your ADHD, but I do want to dig into because it could be linked to your complex PTSD. And here is how. Now, when we have childhood trauma, hypervigilance is our best friend because if we're repeatedly going through traumatizing situations, we're always on edge and it behooves us to be looking at our environment. We're wired this way anyway, but it's like intensified because we're looking in our environment for anything that could be threatening. Now, when we're constantly being traumatized, we start to think slowly but surely everything is threatening right? People, places, things, smells, sounds, all of that can be traumatizing and triggering because we've been traumatized. If it's repeatedly happening over and over and over all these different scenarios, that there's all these different things involved in each of those traumas. Does that make sense? It's like if I was abused, let's say, um, let's say my father was uh, physically abusive when I was a kid and he abused me in the basement of our home, which we didn't have, but let's pretend we did. And I, Sesame Street was on the TV and I just had peanut butter crackers. Now those things are going to be associated with the trauma, the basement, Sesame Street, peanut butter crackers. Maybe if I remember what I was wearing or maybe what I smelled, maybe coffee or you know something in the air, all of those things are going to be linked to that trauma and they could potentially be triggering later if I don't process that trauma. Now let's say I get abused again and I'm in my bedroom and uh, it smells like baby powder and there's no music on and but it's really hot out and you know what i mean like you think of different scenarios and there's all these different things that can be linked through all of our senses right all five senses queued up all those things that happened are linked to that trauma and therefore what happens is our world can get really small because everything is triggering or everything is a threat hence why when we get older we can already be queued up our brain and nervous system is already hyper aware of our environment, possibly making us avoid certain things or many, many things. And so when someone lumps something extra stressful onto us, because we're already managing all this, think of resilience, right? Our level of resilience or what we would call like the window of tolerance, meaning our ability to weather life storms. Since we're already managing all these triggers and these things and we're assessing our environment, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And we're, we're just queued up. Then when another daily life stressor is thrown our way, it's like we're, we're, we have no, no way to catch it. 
we're overwhelmed already. It's like keeping all these plates spinning and someone gives you another one. You're like, I can't keep that one going, right? And so I think that could be what is causing this sensitivity to stress in adulthood because I wonder if you're still, if you if you maybe without realizing it are already like managing a lot of stress and triggers and like trauma responses each and every day, all day. And so that extra stuff is just too much because we're already full. And the way to train up is really to take care of, the way I always tell my patients to start is like basic needs. And basic doesn't mean easy. It just means stay stick with the basics. Drink enough water, eat every three to four hours. Make sure you get at least seven and a half hours of sleep. You can look into Dr. Matthew Walker's research if you want to know why seven and a half, but that's what they find. Take your medications as prescribed, shower regularly, interact with friends and family, people who feel safe at least, you know, as often as you can, but hopefully at least once a week. That could be through calling, FaceTiming, things like that. Those are just some of our basic things that we need to have happen in our life. Move your body. I know it sounds silly. I'm not saying exercise in a big way. Move your body, stretch, go for a walk. If you have a dog, take them for a longer walk. Maybe today, get outside, breathe that fall air, take it in. Um, do those, those things. That's how we build up that resilience. Because if we're just think about it, I talk about halt all the time, right? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If I haven't slept or ate, look out, right? I have no resilience. I have no patience for things. I'm not my best self and you won't be either, right? We need to take care of those things. So that's where we start. And that's how we begin to build up that resilience or what this person called their stress tolerance. Now, there was a comment on this as, as an add-on, my siblings have always had a very difficult time studying and coping with stress. I, on the other hand, was never really stressed out and was a fast learner and therefore academically more successful than they were. However, that changed since my depression got terrible. But although I'm now fully recovered from anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder, I am terrible at remembering things and I even keep, oh, and even keeping attention. My grades dropped a lot, although I'm supposed to feel better, but I rather feel stressed out. What can I do? I'm curious what's happening because it sounds to me, I have a couple questions for this person. Could be brain fog, which could be if you had COVID, a lot of people have brain fog as a lasting side effect, unfortunately. Also, brain fog can come from a lot of medications. I actually just was talking to my girlfriend, Kim, who has to take medication for her migraines. She gets like horrible migraines a lot. Um, and it causes her to struggle to find words and to concentrate, but it stops the migraine. So, you know, which one do you pick? Um, SSRIs, antidepressants or SNRIs. Those are just selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or selective, um, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Is that the right word? What is SNRI? I'm sorry, guys. But those things can all cause, um, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake. Yep. I thought so. Okay. Um, those can all cause brain fog. And I don't know if you're on a medication, but I w- I'm very, always very curious about that. Now, from a therapist standpoint, I'm like, are we sure our depression is gone? I'm very curious because my depressed patients have a really hard time remembering things and holding attention. Concentration, she's not our friend. We can't find her. She She's in and out. We have to read and reread and read and reread. And it's really annoying if we're trying to get through school or work or something. And so I would talk to your therapist. I would talk to your psychiatrist if you have one, if you're taking medication, ask them questions about this because I'm kind of curious as to where this is coming from. And there's a lot of reasons that it could happen. And 
Not to mention that even if our depression was better and we feel like we're finally over it, if we don't take care of ourselves, just like a common cold, just because I am recovered from it and feel better doesn't mean it won't come back. And the same with our mental health. We just have to take care of it regularly. And so those are those are just my thoughts on that. Ask, um, Make some appointments, ask some questions, and hopefully you get some helpful answers. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, how does one become an adult or grow up? I've been called mature my whole life only to be told that I need to grow up as an adult. I feel like I've done so much growing up already. And on the surface, I'm okay at adulting. I can get my work done. I can pay my bills. I can take care of myself and the house. Yet something is missing as others say, I still appear very much like a child and I don't know what I'm missing. Thank you. Okay. I have a lot of questions and I have a lot of thoughts. Number one, the fact that you said you've been called mature your whole life. You know how people like to say, oh, they're such an old soul. That usually just means that in your family, you had to act in a role as a parent for one reason or another. It could be that you, your parents couldn't emotionally meet you where you're at. And so you were the emotional Sherpa for the family, bringing everybody along, keeping everybody up to date. That could be why. It could also be because you were a parentified child because of many reasons. Could be abuse or neglect. It could be that you're a latchkey kid. And when you came home from school, you had to make food for all of your other siblings. One of you had to play the parent because your parents are working because they had to pay the bills. And it's not that that's necessarily trauma related, but there's a reason that you've been called mature your whole life. I'm curious about where that comes from. Those are just some of my basic thoughts about where that could come from. And being a parentified child isn't healthy. Because, and here's what I think is happening now, when we don't get a childhood, like, uh, let's say we, uh, like, I even have a, a person in our family, like, very distant who got pregnant at, like, 16, and then at about 35 or 40 had, like, a complete meltdown and left her husband and started a whole new life and wanted to, like, party it up because she never got to be a kid. That's a very extreme example of what we might be doing because we've always been quote unquote mature or so adult for our age, we never got to be a kid. We never got to um, maybe emotionally grow up or maybe even just learn how to date or to interact with other people in a real way because we were too busy taking care of business, being the adult, being the parent, taking care of our siblings or our family or our home. We might not have had the time to emotionally or relationally grow up like other kids. So when we get older, we can act very childlike. I've had a ton of patients who were parentified children when they were, you know, as they were growing up. And then as adults, they're almost like stunted when it comes to knowing how to interact with people their age, because frankly, they never really had an opportunity to like date when they were 16 or have that first kiss or be uncomfortable or to do any of that because they were too busy being the adult. And I know that sounds weird. You're like, but I already grew up. No, no. You skipped like steps four through seven, and now you're, you've lived your life at like step eight, and now you're going back to like go through those steps because we didn't get a chance to do it. Does that make sense? And so we can be childlike in other ways because we were parentified in, you know, the rest of the ways of our life. And it's okay. I'd encourage you, if you're not in therapy, get in therapy, start talking about the ways that you maybe feel childlike or the things people have said about you being childlike. Let's do some exploratory research, right? We can be a detective. We don't have to judge ourselves. We're just trying to learn in what ways maybe am I childlike? Am I really reactive and act childlike when it comes to disagreements or arguments? Do I have a tough time taking any criticism because I feel like I'm doing everything for everybody else? 
Do I take on extra responsibility when I don't even have to? Why do I think I need to do that? Is that something I used to do when I was growing up? These are all very important questions to kind of dig into and consider for a second. Because if we were taking on that role in childhood, do we still need to take it on as an adult? Maybe we don't. Maybe we can let go of some of that and that can leave room for us, for us to figure out who we are, what we like in relationships, what we don't like in relationships. How are we in our adult friendships and romantic relationships? Do we have them? Do we want them? What do those look like? It'll give us that space to consider. Okay. I hope that makes sense and is helpful. Also know that you're not alone. Being a parentified child or being extra mature for your age is incredibly common. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hey, Katie, how do I improve my resilience? specifically physical resilience. When I'm at my parents' house, I work very hard to use coping skills and to step away from triggering situations so that I can make it through emotionally and mentally. I'm proud of you. But my body physically deteriorates when I'm there. I am nauseous the whole time. I get horrible migraines every few days. I struggle to sleep, etc. How can I become more resilient so that it doesn't affect me so much? Thank you for all that you do. Okay, I'm going to I have a couple thoughts here. Number one, I would encourage you maybe to not stay at your parents that long. Because if it's that, if, if it affects you that deeply, you have to use all your coping skills. You have to step away. You have like migraines. You're nauseous. You're not sleeping well. That's not a healthy place for you. And I know you probably still want a relationship with your parents and that's okay. But maybe healthy boundaries, I know, very difficult. Maybe when you go, you stay at a hotel or you stay at like your sister's house or brother's house or friend's house, somewhere different so that you get a break. Are your parents going to be upset? Maybe. Can we communicate as clearly as possible that we just like to have our own space a little bit? Yes. Are we responsible for how they feel? No, but we can communicate and we can do what's best for us. No one says that we have to go back and we have to stay in our childhood room and potentially be re-traumatized and so overwhelmed that we can't even live there. You know, we can't even stay there, right? And by doing that, then we might be able to go more often because it's not so deteriorating, okay? So I'm just throwing it out there. Figure out a different way maybe because this does not sound healthy at all. Now, the second part about like how do you become more physically resilient? Essentially what's happening because our mental health and our physical health are so inextricably linked your mental stress is affecting you physically, like migraine, struggling to, st- to sleep, feeling nauseous. That's all like lizard brain stuff. And if you want to look into lizard brain, Google your heart out, go into Google Scholar, read the articles. It's fascinating. It's essentially the connection between our brain and body, which we know already exists, but people try to deny them. So because this is so emotionally taxing, your body is showing the signs. And to me, that says that we need to build up our resilience a little bit more before we go and see them. And that means all those things I was talking about before, the basic needs, eating, sleeping, drinking water, taking medication, moving our bodies, uh, petting a dog if we have one that actually releases all those feel-good hormones and stuff, Um, showering, you know, just things like that. And if there's a way to incorporate some other feel-good things while you're there, even better. This might mean that you say, hey, mom and dad, I'll be back later this afternoon. I'm going to go for a walk with one of my friends, or I'm going to go on a walk on my own. I want to listen to my favorite podcast. If they're like, hey, I'd love to come with you. Be like, I just need my alone time. I do this, you know, when I'm at home and I'd like to do it here too, if that's okay with you. I know you're like, boundaries, we don't know them, but I'm here to tell you that they're important to place because it will 
hopefully help you build again that window of tolerance. We have to do things, like you said, stepping away. That's like you building in time for you to be either staying somewhere different to like fully step away in that way or making chunks of time within your stay where you get to be by yourself or with someone who's loving and supportive. Because my guess is, my hypothesis is that your parents are not maybe loving and supportive or they weren't at some point and therefore you're just walking into one big trigger after another and that's exhausting. And so that's really my advice. Limiting the time you spend there or staying somewhere else, doing more things and even before and after your visit to help you recuperate because those migraines, the sleep issues and the nausea, that's coming from this the emotional stress that those types of trips that being around them puts on you. Okay. And you're not alone. This happens to a lot of people. Um, I even have videos around the holidays. I know it's holiday specific, but it's really not. It applies all the time about how to manage toxic family during the holidays. I think it came out like three years ago or four years ago. You can just put toxic family during the holidays, Katie Morton on YouTube, and it'll come up. And I have some other tips and ideas in there as well. Now, there was a comment on this that says, as an add-on, ever since my depression got very severe, I've been crying really easily, like when watching animal commercials or seeing someone do nice things for others. Although I never used to cry in such situations. Even now, although I'm fully recovered from depression and the rest of my disorders, but I don't know why the crying doesn't stop. Everybody's different. And I, there's nothing wrong with crying. The thing about crying is it's just a, a lot of times it's our body releasing certain hormones and chemicals for lack of a better description and it's a release and it can feel very good but when we're crying all the time and really easily I usually I mean some people are more criers than others but I think it means that we're not taking care of our basic needs now sure your depression could be better I wonder if it's still hanging around but it I also wonder if I think your resilience is low which is why you're so easily tearful I personally call that me being full like I'm just maxed out. I'm so full on shit that I have to do. People who expect things from me, responsibilities that I put on myself, expectations I put on myself. I'm full to the fucking brim. And so when anything emotional happens, I'm super reactive because that window of tolerance we've been talking about, that level of resilience, you can call it whatever you like, is really low. And the best way to work on this is actually to take care of yourself. And those are things, like I said, those basic needs, the water, you know, food, sleep, moving your body, um, get, you know, doing all the things, taking your medication as prescribed, doing those things, getting connection with people who you love, who love you back. That's all incredibly healing and something that we need to make time for, because if we don't, we cry, we are reactive to people. We can lash out at those we love. It can be terrible. And it's, It sounds simple, but I know it's hard work. And so just maybe pick one of those things you're going to try to do for the next like few days. Like I'm going to try to drink another glass of water every day, more than I normally do. Or if we only drink juice or pop all the time, then I'm going to try to drink some water, right? What is, if I haven't been eating very regularly, I, I skip out on lunch or breakfast or both. Maybe I can try to have a yogurt in the morning and a sandwich in the afternoon. Can I try to plan for that and try to do it a couple times this week? See how I feel. All of those things are very important. Or I'm promised to get off a TikTok, you know, by 11 o'clock and put myself to bed. That can be hard, but we can try. We can set an alarm on our phone to be like, hey, boop, boop, we got to go to bed. Um, All of those ways to try to take care of ourselves so we can build up that window of tolerance so we're not so tearful or potentially agitated 
with other people and just with situations where we don't want to be, right? Maybe we don't want to cry all the time, be crying easily. That can be overwhelming and exhausting. So I hope that helps. Now, there was a comment, last comment on this says, I'd actually like to give an add-on. How do you improve your resiliency to be able to cope with therapy? Like when therapy itself is just too much. Maybe it's too much to meet a new person. Maybe you have triggers surrounding words often used in therapy or actions often done in therapy. Maybe you don't feel comfortable with some someone judging you on if you have a mental illness. And if yes, which one? Like what if going to therapy just makes you really sick? Like a lot of the time, go to therapy is the answer. But what if your lack of resilience to cope with the things that you're confronted with in therapy or that are expected of you in therapy? That's a great question. And the truth is, if you're feeling this way, the my best advice for you is to tell your therapist about it. Like all the things you said, like if therapy itself is too much or it's too triggering, as a therapist, I usually give more time, less I like slow our build into tough topics and I give you time to decompress at the end of session. And that might mean there's only like 10 minutes of real intense work, but that might be all we can handle at the moment. And that's okay. Therapy is about meeting you where you're at and working at a pace that is comfortable and not too slow that you're not making any progress and not so fast that you are re-traumatized or feel overwhelmed by it. So it's finding that middle. And that's really the art of being a therapist. And so you want to find someone who gets it and works with you. And if they don't, you don't have to see them again. That's it, period. You don't have to make another appointment if they're bad at their jobs. Okay. Now, the other things like having someone judge you and all the triggers surrounding the words, if there are triggering words, the best, again, we have to tell people. We can't expect people to read our minds or to know what's triggering or upsetting. We have to let them know. And I know that that in and of itself can be difficult, but maybe we take some time putting that together or writing it down and handing it to them at the end of a session. All of that's fine just to get that information out there. And overall, my thoughts like to wrap this up is that therapy can be helpful, but if we're not at a place where we can participate, that doesn't mean we have to get into therapy. However, I think all, and I'm just putting it out there. I think all of the things that come up in therapy are coming up for us in our life, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. The thing about our life is that we usually avoid those things, meaning we don't meet new people. We don't maybe even go out and talk to people. If we ever feel like someone uses a word that's triggering or is judgmental, we just don't see them again. We can be very isolated or maybe we only have like one friend. It's showing up for us in our life, whether we want to admit it or not. It just seems to be kind of condensed or exacerbated in therapy because a therapeutic relationship is just so different, right? It's just a much more unique and possibly intensive relationship and therefore you know, it feels overwhelming. And I encourage you to take your time with it. Again, finding the right fit is the most important thing. And then communication, letting them know about your triggers and your upsets and things that you're worried about and using that therapeutic relationship to practice and work on this stuff. Because yes, we're going to need to take care of ourselves in that basic resilience, but all of these things that you're talking about, like therapy itself being too much, like meeting a new person, person, someone using triggering words, um, feeling like someone's judging you, and I think all of those, I would hypothesize, are showing up in other ways in your life. And that's why, you know, it's important to can even go to therapy, even though it feels difficult. 
and spoilers, therapy is always fucking difficult. If therapy is not hard for you, you just feel like you just go in and chitty chat. Oh, it's so lovely. You're not doing the hard work. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people are like, but they're like my best friend and we just chitty chat. I'm like, eh. that's actually not therapeutic. Therapy shouldn't be re-traumatizing, but I can't tell you how many times it feels like my therapist just like ripped open my soul and poked in and was like, that that's interesting. What do you think about that? And I'm like, huh, I don't want anybody to see that. And then I'm supposed to change. I'm supposed to act in a different way that feels completely opposite of me. That's real therapy, right? Because I want to change. I want to do better. I'm trying to find ways to interact. I'm doing, having difficult conversations with people. I'm trying to manage my own reactivity. I'm trying to take care of myself. All that stuff is hard. It's exhausting. So finding a therapist that meets you where you're at, works at a pace that feels good, and you at least feel that they hear you and they see you, you feel comfortable when you meet them. You're like, I kind of like them. That's what we're looking for. And all that other stuff you can manage as it comes up and work it through so that it doesn't affect the rest of your life. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. It says, hello, Katie. I hope all is well. It is. I hope all is well with you. It says, I was hoping that you could talk about emotional maturity and suggestions for someone who just feels emotionally immature. I grew up in a very neglectful house and I've been working toward getting better at expressing myself, growing up any sign. Oh, growing up, any sign of emotion meant I was a baby or being dramatic. Ugh, I'm so sorry. So when getting into a discussion with my partner or I, be, uh, oh, if, if my partner or I become upset, I just seem to shut down. It's like I physically cannot express how I'm feeling. I literally don't know the words. Hopefully that makes sense to express or explain my emotions. Totally makes sense. Any tips on working through this? And also, do you think therapy would be helpful for me in finding the words that I need when trying to explain how I feel? Any tips are appreciated. Okay, I have quite a few thoughts. First of all, yes, therapy can really help you find the words. In my book, Are You Okay? I talk about how that's one of the huge benefits of therapy is just finding language to put to what we're going through. I don't know what it is about having words like, oh, I'm not crazy. I just have panic attacks. Oh, like, Sometimes that can be incredibly validating and empowering because now that I know what it is, I can do something about it, right? It's like comparing it again to our physical health. If all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I have strep throat. That's why I'm struggling to swallow my own spit. And now that I know that I can take this medication and I can fight that infection. But before I didn't know what it was, I was just like, oh my God, I'm dying, right? And we do that with our mental health the same way. We're like, oh my God, I think I'm going to pass out. And I also feel like my heart's going to beat out of my chest and I might die at the same time. Oh my God, that's a panic attack. Okay. Now that I know that that's what it is, I can find a therapist who specializes in anxiety and I can work to manage it. Or I can see a psychiatrist and get some medication to help me bring that down. So empowering, so helpful. And that works with feeling words as well. So when we work with a therapist, they're going to help us come to come to it. And I don't know if I want to say like an agreement, it's not really an agreement, but it's like work with them to put language to what you're experiencing. And it, they'll probably want you to do a lot of the work because we don't want to put any words into your mouth. Like, oh, are you feeling this, that, or the other? I might want you to look at the feelings wheel or one of those feelings charts and be like, which one kind of resonates? Sounds like we're more in this like angry, you know, chunk or hurt area. Do you agree or disagree? Which, you know, and having you try to figure it out slowly, but surely and so, yes, it can be incredibly helpful that way. Um, but on your own, you can just go to the feelingswheel.com or just Google on YouTube feelings wheel or feelings chart, print some of those out, 
if your partner is open to this, when you're struggling and you like shut down, can we, can you say something to the effect of, I don't know if you can, but we'll build up to have this space where you say, I just need a couple minutes to recoup. Can we continue talking in a few minutes? You know, just step away, go in the bathroom for a second, pull out your feelings chart on your phone or the printed version and look at it. Are there any words that stick out to you? Could we tell our partner, hey, I'm feeling blah, 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 this, that, and the other. I'm feeling exhausted. I'm feeling misunderstood. I'm feeling angry. That could be helpful too. But if you're not able to do it in the moment, moment, it's completely fine after the fact to, you know, even if we do shut down, let your partner know that you're working on this and that it's hard. But after the fact, we can look at it. We can pull out that feelings wheel or feelings chart. And we can say, I think what I'm, I was experiencing was this. Even if it's just one thing, that's more than zero, right? And that's moving in the right direction. And we'll try to build on that. Next time we have a disagreement or we struggle, we find ourselves wanting to shut down and at work, at school, in our relationships, whatever's happening, we go in and we try to find that feeling or maybe two feelings, right? We just try to build because it does take time. If we grew up in an, an environment where it wasn't okay to express emotions, all emotions were just not okay. Like you said, you were told you were too sensitive. You're being a baby, being dramatic, right? All of that told us that any emotion we have wasn't okay. So we just stuffed it down and suppressed it and pretended it wasn't there, but they were there. And now we don't know how to deal with them because nobody helped us. They told us to shut it down. And so you shut down, but now you're like, I don't want to shut down. I want to express them. And so we have to learn in that process. Think of like little children. So show yourself a little compassion. Think of a little child when they throw a tantrum right? Ah, they're stomping their feet. They may be hitting their fist. Maybe they're even trying to hit you. And you're like, we don't hit. Remember, we don't hit. You know, how many parents have to tell their kids, we don't hit or we don't bite or we don't do those things, right? Are you feeling frustrated? Parents give children words. We try to teach them. It seems like you're frustrated. Are you frustrated because, and we start to try to guess, are you frustrated because you can't go to the park and you thought you would? I know I'm frustrated too, because it's raining. And that was our plan for today. I don't know what we're going to do either. Here are some other options. Now, I know that seems very childlike and you're like, Katie, but I'm not a kid. Like, how are you, gonna? you can do that to adult you. Adult you can say to adult you, hey, in your head, right? Have a little conversation with yourself. <sighs> you seem really angry, but I don't really think it's anger. What else is going on? You know, we're just being a detective. We're being curious, right? Sometimes I say to myself, wow, Katie, you're like extra pissed at that person. That doesn't really make any sense. So what else is going on? Uh, I think you're just feeling overwhelmed and they were upsetting to you because they said this word or they acted in this way or they were rude to someone you love or whatever, right? You try to tease it out. What's really going on? And try to guess the word, just like a parent would do with a child. I encourage you to do that with yourself because we have to go back to that kind of learning and work our way out of it because we never had that opportunity as a kid. And it's okay. Take your time. Again, like I've been saying throughout this, you're not alone. This is incredibly common. A lot of parents, because they're not comfortable with their own emotions, create that in their child because then they're also not comfortable with their child's emotions. And so you both live these repressed lives. And when we get out of it and we're like, I don't really like that, we have to start back where we should have had the opportunity to be like, yeah, mom or dad, I am really angry or I am frustrated. Like my girlfriend, Abba is so good with her kids with this. I mean, she's also a therapist, but he'll say like, I'm feeling frustrated or I don't like that. Or I feel really happy in my heart. All these cute ways to describe what they feel and I encourage you to not be judgmental about what 
or how you want to describe those things. Happy in your heart is a good explanation. I feel butterflies in my stomach. I feel like I just want to jump around the room. Those are all ways to describe feelings or I want to stomp and I want to rip things apart. That's helpful too. So I encourage you just to explore it and learn just like a child would and you'll get there. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, Katie, do you think people can truly change? Good question. For good or bad. I've been with a partner for five years and they have changed in bad ways towards me and themselves. Am I ridiculous for thinking that they can change back or that they will change back? And at what point do I give up? No one stays the same forever, right? Right. Nobody stays the same forever. We all hope that we're moving in a good direction, but sometimes things happen or we... I don't know, it could be circumstance, could be genetics, mental illness, right? There's a genetic component to it. Could be life stressors. There's all sorts of reasons we can kind of go in the wrong direction. I do believe people can truly change. Here's a huge and heavy caveat. Yes, we can all change. However, we have to want to. And that's a big, big, tall order for people wanting to change. Change is hard. Have you ever tried to change a habit? Like I want to, um, you know, floss my teeth more often, or I want to try to exercise more, or I want to read more. It's hard to do that. That's why most of our New Year's resolutions, which by the way, I hate, you guys know I hate those, but they were out of them by February 1st. And frankly, I'm impressed anybody lasts more than a couple of weeks. It's hard. And so, yes, we can, but we have to be willing to put in the work. And I, I know that's hard for people to understand and it's really difficult and it seems exhausting. Like, why can't it be easier? I don't know. It's just not the way that we're made. It's just not the way our brain works. Changing habits. I've talked about this in relation to um, things in the past, like our brain being a balloon filled with sand and our, our thoughts and actions are like these marbles that roll from thought to action, right? And these marbles roll on this balloon and they create these ruts in that sand inside, right? Can you visualize it? I can even hear it. And it's creating these ruts. And as we try to change a behavior, what we're asking is for that marble to jump out of that rut and to create a new one. It's going to want to roll right back into that rut, right? And so it's going to take extra muscle, extra motivation, extra courage, extra energy to keep it from going back into that rut and creating a different one over here, this better one that we like, right? And I say that because it's harder at first and then it gets easier and it's that motivation and it's that want to get better or to change that people usually think they have and then quickly realize they don't really have the oomph for it. And so, yes, your partner can change, but they have to want to. And you can tell them, hey, I'd really like to go to couples counseling. We don't have to only go to couples counseling when we're trying to like save a marriage. Honestly, if everybody went to couples counseling way earlier on, we'd all be better off. And I think divorce rates would go down because a lot of people just don't know how to talk to each other. But go to couples counseling. You can talk about it. Let them know, hey, I've noticed this, that, and the other. Try to say, remember keeping it about yourself and not pointing the finger. Meaning instead of saying, you're always doing this, say things like, I've really noticed, you know, that... um that you're, you've lashed out at me and I find some of the ways you've changed in your behavior really hurtful or I've found it to to be, it's they say like I statements or me, that can be kind of limiting when we're talking. Just try to make it more about your experience and how you felt and not you always do or you make me feel. You need to say, I when, when you've done X, Y, or Z, we can give examples, that's fair. 
I have felt misunderstood or I have felt slighted or hurt or, you know, whatever, whatever you felt. Let them know. And in couples counseling, it can really help to in not, what's the word I'm looking for? can help to like allow or make space for those conversations because I know it can be difficult on our own. And so overall, yes, he could change back, but they have to, they have to want to, and it can be really difficult for people to, to want to long enough to actually make the change, but that doesn't mean we can't support it. And we all do change over time. We just hope that it's in a healthy, good direction. Okay. Thank you all so much for your questions. I hope those answers were helpful. I hope that they maybe just gave you a little insight into something you could do to better yourself or your relationships because we're all works in progress, right? Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you later. Bye.